Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we will be continuing our look at Francis Parkman Jr.'s uh, life's work, France and England in North America. And we'll be starting the second volume of the Library of America's collection of, of Parkman's writings covering this, this work. There was one other volume already looked at uh, dealing with the Oregon Trail and Pontiac's The Conspiracy of Pontiac, his first books written, but he's most well known for France and Amer England in North America. And this episode will begin also a look at uh, his fifth volume in the series, Count Frontenac and New France under Louis XIV. This was published first in 1877, and um, this was followed by Montcalm and Wolfe which was the final book in the series. Uh, and then he came back and wrote the middle section, uh, the, the kind of the part between this, which covers the early 18th century, and that deals with the wars of England and France uh, in the New World in before the Seven Years' War. Now, Count Frontenac and New France under Louis XIV deals mostly with the two terms of, of governor of Count Frontenac. He served from 1672 to 1682, and then again from 1689 to 1698 when he died. He, he was already an old man when he started the first term, or, or eight, you know, he was fairly up there. Um, and when he did the second term, he was in his 70s already. So um, when he died, his second term ended. And Parkman sees Frontenac's reign Reign's the wrong term, but uh, front, he saw Frontenac's rule uh, as gov you know his reign his his, uh, his tenure. I keep trying to find the right word there. His tenure as Governor General of New France is kind of the high point of of New France, the time when uh, kind of all the forces of of absolutism kind of reached their peak, and France had the most clear agenda in creating a permanent empire that could compete with with Britain. So front, um, Parkman thinks that if people like Frontenac had continued to rule France, continued to rule New France, in the years after, in the, in the, in the 18th century, maybe the history of the New World would have been um, different. Um, but as we saw in the last book, Parkman also saw kind of a lot of corruptions, a lot of contradictions already dwelling in, in New France. So chronologically, this book kind of sits alongside the LaSalle and the discovery of the Great West and the old regime in Canada, both dealing with the, the later half of the 18th, 70, sorry, the 17th century. And, but they deal with different things. So LaSalle and the Great West deals with the stuff way out in the West in the Great Lakes and in the Mississippi Valley, those exploits. The old regime in Canada deals more with the social history and the kind of the political institutions of New France. And then this book, Count Frontenac and New France under Louis XIV, explores largely the, the political, diplomatic um, aspects. Now, what is that? What's going on here that makes this such an important period for, for New France and for the New World in general? Well, for that, we actually have to uh, shift to England a little bit. And we'll be going into a little bit more detail about this, but hopefully you remember your European history. Um, or even some American history can inform you of this, but if, you, if you're not up to that, I'll, I'll go over the brief, the crucial event. Um, now, front, notice with me, Frontenac is returned. He, he's actually fired after the first 10 years, basically for being too much of a problematic figure, causing too many troubles, and I'll, I'll go over that history 
in this episode. But he, after after uh, seven years of two more governors, both of whom didn't do quite as well. I mean, some of them did okay. Bonneville was an okay governor, but the crisis of 1688 was was. 1688 and 69 was so great that they had to bring in Frontenac again, a strong man who could maybe make, could fix the mess that, that New France was in. And it really has to do with England. So as you probably know, James II, uh, the, the third to last Stuart monarch, um, of course, now for that, you have to go back, for the Stuart monarchs, you have to go back to, you know, even like Henry VIII. Henry VIII's, I think, was sister married, uh, the king of Scotland, and because of that, when the Tudor line died out with Elizabeth I not having any children, the, the throne went to James I, uh, James VII of, of Scotland, James I of, of, of England. And this, of course, leads to the United Kingdom and all that, but you had a series of Stuart monarchs, all of whom were influenced, maybe not all of them, but many of them were influenced by uh, what was going on in France with Louis the Fourteenth and the rise of absolutism, and they were believed in divine right, and they just believed in the centralizing role um, of the the central role the monarchy should play in political life in England. And um, James the uh, First started this, but really James the uh, Charles the First did this even more, and he eventually was faced by a revolution in in England, and then this led to a republic that was formed briefly under Cromwell. And after a few years of that, the monarchy was restored, um, but by invitation of Parliament, by, and Charles II, the son of Charles I, was brought back uh, to be king, and he was a Protestant. His son, though, um, no, his brother, sorry, his brother, James II, was, Charles II had, had actually many, many children, but no legitimate ones, as far as I know, or none that lived. Uh, but James II, the brother, Became the you know became the king after Charles II died, and James II was a Catholic. That was the the problem. He was also a believer in absolute monarchy, and he had close relationships with France. So he had a very short reign, three four years, and eventually in 1688 he's pushed out in the Glorious Revolution. Um, and this, and who gets the who gets the monarchy after that point? Well, it passes on the Stuart line to the other sibling of Charles II, uh, Mary, who is a Stuart monarch in that line, but married to, to um, William of Orange, the, the head of the Dutch, who was at war with France. So they went from, so with, they, they went very shortly from James II being essentially very closely related with France to, to the, the King of England being someone who's actively at war with Louis the Fourteenth, And this leads to an event called the Nine Years' War, which is one of the many wars of, of Louis the Fourteenth, um, And it's, it was fought in the New World. It was fought in Ireland. It was fought uh, throughout Europe. And after that reign, of course, then you get uh, Queen Anne, who, despite having many children, none of them survived into adulthood, ended the Stuart line, official line, and that's when they went to the Georges, the Hanoverian um, branch. So none of that really matters so much for this story, but what does matter is the Glorious Revolution and the introduction of a war between France and England pretty suddenly in 1689. And so that is going to be part of the problem. The other problem will be 
uh, a new war with the Iroquois, and they both happen at the same time, both in 1688, 1689, and this forces Frontenac's return to to Governor Visco forces Louis XIV to find someone who thinks can handle it, and then um, he has many. Frontenac has many successes as governor, but you know after he died, just no one really of his mettle followed up as governor of of New France, at least according to Parkman. So this book's fairly short; it's three hundred pages. Uh, the last two volumes of France and England and North America are quite long. Uh, Half Century Conflict is four hundred pages. Montcalm and Wolfe is more like six hundred or so. Six or seven hundred. This one is a fairly short, quick read. Um, I would say the first episode we're going to look at deals mostly with Frontenac's arrival in Quebec in his first term. The second episode deals uh, and his when he gets fired, and then the governors that follow up on that. The second uh, two parts, the, the second and third episode of the series, will look at Frontenac's second term as. As, as governor, focusing on the wars with the Iroquois and the wars in Acadia and the wars, the general wars against England at the time of the, of the, in the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution and the rise of King William to be, you know, the, to be the King of England. So um, that's, that's the, the broad picture here. So I've, um, you know, re reading this, you know, I've noticed like how much LaSalle comes up, how much the themes in the previous volumes come up. And this is this is the kind of book you, you sort of want to read with maybe Wikipedia open because there's a lot of names and a lot of uh, figures that it's just useful to kind of keep track of some of them. Like, for instance, there's a, a man named Perrault, who's a major role in Frontenac's first term as governor. But there's two Perrault's in New France, right? One is a like a Cordy Bois kind of guy, uh, an explorer, and the other is the governor of Montreal. And which one did he have trouble with, right? But they both show up in this book. So, um, you know, it's useful to keep that open and keep those names um, straight. It's quite helpful. Another thing I found helpful was actually looking up the administration of New France, um, especially under Louis Fourteenth, because he kind of establishes this. Um, system and there's actually a nice little graph which I found I guess it was on Wikipedia uh, describing this so how was New France administered it's actually something to maybe study before you even pick up these books just to keep it um, straight of course uh, at the center you have the king of France and he, he's appointing all these major figures of course and in Paris you have two major uh, administrative units that advise the colonial government and give orders to the colonial government on behalf of the king. Uh, the first is the Secretary of State of the Navy, and the second is the Controller General of Finance. And under during the period that we're studying here, or in this book, um, it's Colbert is the Minister of Finances. So he's a very crucial figure in basically speaking on behalf of the king. Although the king will write letters to Frontenac, uh, it's often the Controller General of Finances, who is Colbert. And he's appointed by the King of France, and he will give direction, directives to the colonial government. Now, here's the rub, uh, is when you go to the colonial government itself, there are actually four people, and they all have their kind of own domain, and or, or four group, four institutions. The, three are people, one is a council. But they all have kind of their own domain, and there's some checks and balances between them, but there's not really 
a clear hierarchy between these four. So a lot of the conflicts, especially in Frontenac's first term, uh, are between these different people. So who do you have? You have the governor general of New France. Uh, he's, that's the position Frontenac has. It's a position we've seen other people have before. Now he gets orders from the king. He can be appointed by the king. And he gets uh, directions from the Navy and the Controller General of Finances. Now he is, in theory, um, under or under him theoretically are the the different local governors. So like the governor of Montreal, the government of Ile Royale, uh, Acadia, Louisiana, and these people. And those will then direct various Indian allies and, and run local militias. Um, the governor general of New France also commands the army, the 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 the, the military, the military of New France. But of course, there's also a local militia that is controlled by the by the various local governors. Now, he will have a seat on the Superior Council. The Superior Council is like the second institution here, and it's got 16 members, um, but it's presided by a whole nother person who's called the intendant. Um, so let's deal with the intendant first. The intendant was a position created by the King of France, Louis XIV, as part of his efforts to centralize administration and to put more control. So in an effort to centralize it, he created a little bit more confusion over who's in charge uh, in New France. Now, governor general, of course, is the, the top official in many ways. He's in charge of things like the police, trade, industry, roads, and all that. But the intendant who presides over the superior council um, has the control over finances, and the cities and, and various public works. So the civil administration is split between the governor general and the intendant, who is, um, was someone who was more recently created by the King of France, while the governor general has an older, longer history. Um, also, the intendant has some control over the judiciary, something that the, the governor himself doesn't really have any control over. Um, so the Superior Council, so the Superior Council uh, has as one of its members, the governor general, it's presided by the intendant, and you have the bishop of Quebec is, is also a member of the Superior Council. So there's some checks and balances here between them, some, um, and this gets in the way, I think, of centralization. I think there's some administrative um, problems here if you want to kind of rule very directly, and maybe that's a, um, a difficulty that New France had. Um, at least Parkman seems to think that there's kind of administrative contradictions here. So the Superior Council, they're in charge of, according to this chart, not that much. It's basically, they're the court of appeal for the, all the local courts and the royal courts. So you have the royal court and you have the specialized courts, like the, um, the admiralty is a specialized court, and then you have the civil affairs under the royal courts. And the Superior Council basically serves as the court of appeal for them. Now, the fourth figure, of course, is not being appointed by the, well, it was appointed by the Pope, but under the theory of the Gallic Church, that, that appointment will be made by the King of, of, of France, and then the official appointment made by the Pope, but it's basically recommended by the King. He, of course, is in charge of all the clergy and all the spiritual life of the, of the, of the people and educational institutions. Uh, and then, of course, the, that makes the Pope and the whole religious power uh, key as well. 
So is there anything missing here? Um, well, then you have kind of this, what well, we talked about in the last couple episodes, this kind of Canadian feudalism that's emerged. So you have the, you know, the different nobility and they will do different things like uh, serve in the local militias or they will be involved in trade or they might uh, be, be clergy, um, they, you know, or send children, sons to be clergy mem members. So um, there's still some authority there, but um, so it's an effort to try to create a fairly uh, systematic administration, but uh, there are four different bastions of power, really three important ones, the governor general, the intendant, and the, the bishop of Quebec. So I don't know if that helps or not, but um, it's, it's what I sort of had to look up to, to fully appreciate all the different relationships explained here. So back um, straight to the book, um, we start with a preface in which, as Parkman usually does, he explores the sources he uses. These are mostly in France. Um, makes it a little bit different than some other, other books because he had, he had to do this research basically from the archives in France. Um, but his big thesis as laid out here is that um, this is the point of peak strength of, of New France. He writes, in the old regime in Canada, I tried to show from what inherent causes this wilderness empire of the great monarch fell at last before a foe superior indeed in numbers, but lacking all the forces that belong to a system of civil and military centralization. The present volume will show how valiantly for a time and how for a time how successfully New France battled against a fate which her own organic fault made inevitable. Her history is a great and significant drama enacted among untamed forests with a distant gleam of courtly splendors and the regal pomp of Versailles. So when I read that, I thought, oh, the bumper for this one has to be kind of court music from Louis XIV. It can't be, you know, kind of French-Canadian folk songs anymore. We're going to have to remind ourselves as we read this book that we're really uh, in the realm of Louis XIV. Um, so that's his basic thesis here, is that Frontenac was the strongest uh, governor of, of New France. And the one who maybe had the best chance of of ensuring a permanent large empire in the Americas for France. Um, chapter one is called The Count and Countess Frontenac, which really it's a short chapter, but it deals with uh, the life of Count Frontenac and his wife. Um, the dates for this are 1620 to 1672. So it's all the time in Frontenac's life up until his appointment. Um, his origin is a key is important, though, because he's from kind of an old line. But by the time he was appointed as governor he was more of a like a courtier of in the in in the court of louis the 14th um, quote count frontenac came of an ancient and noble race said to have been of basque origin his father held a high post in the household of louis the 13th who became the child's godfather and gave him his own name in the age of 15 the young louis showed an incontrollable passion for the life of a soldier he was sent to the seat of Warren Holland to serve under the Prince of Orange. At the age of 19, he was a volunteer at the Siege of Hesden. In the next year, he was at Arras, where he distinguished himself during the sortie of the garrison. In the next, he took part in the Siege of Airy, and in the next, those of Catalour and Perpignan. At the age of 23, he was made a colonel of the Regiment of Normandy, which he commanded in several repeated battles and sieges of the Italian campaign. He was several times wounded, and in 1646 had an arm broken at the siege of Orbitello. In the same year, when 26 years old, he was raised to the rank of Marshal de Camp, equivalent to that of Brigadier General. 
So you see here, he's got a very, um, he's got a very military, he's got a military resume, essentially. But uh, by the time he gets appointed as governor of, of New France, he is largely a courtier. Um, and he gets that commission in 1672. We also get a lot here about his relationship to his wife, which wasn't apparently the most loving, but um, Countess Frontenac is a fairly political figure, the way Parkman presents her, someone who you know, was involved in politics behind the, the scenes. Um, in the next chapter, it's called Frontenac et Quebec. And we are told very clearly by Parkman that Frontenac's a man of action and he's got a lot of ambition. And the ambition is essentially to establish an empire in across North America for France. And this would be done through the creation of forts, the subduing of enemies, the creation of allies. And that's going to create, uh, that's going to require a, a strong man to do that. Now, part of Frontenac's, I guess, problem here is... He's still a believer in the traditional social order of France, so he's still got kind of that three, um, th three estates kind of view. Now, obviously, that would remain the, the hallmark of the old regime in France, but it was something that Louis XIV was trying to undermine and didn't really see as having that much utility in France. He wanted that more direct monarchical control, you know, via Colbert and via his governor and intendant. He wanted that more administrative state there. But Frontenac, a bit old-fashioned in this way, still believed in this. So now what are the three estates in New France? Because they're not going to be the same as in France. Well, on the one hand, you have the Jesuits. They're your kind of first estate, your clergy estate. Then you have, where's your nobility? Well, the nobility are these 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 kind of gentlemen, these, these people who have kind of feudal titles, but often don't have much wealth or land. So they're not really equivalent. Neither the Jesuits for that matter, neither of these are really equivalent to their, their equals in, in France. And then who's your kind of third estate? Well, it's kind of everyone else, obviously, but who has power, who has significance? Well, it's the merchants. Um, so, he still kind of is, is approaching it in this three estate um, worldview. And I don't, I don't think Parkman really makes a strict conclusion about that, but he just points out that it's different than what Louis XIV was trying there. Um, we're also told that he had a lot of personal ambition. Basically, Frontenac's family was on hard times. He, he needed to rebuild his wealth. And so he had this kind of personal ambition as well tied onto it. And he's just the kind of person who picks a lot of fights with rivals or is able to create rivals where none exist. And he, he picks fights. And this is what seems to lead to his, to the end of his first term, is he just picked fights with too many people and caused too many problems back at home. Um, so they eventually um, got rid of him. And the next few couple chapters, chapters three and four, deal with the first term. Now, that first term is 10 years. And Parkman only devotes really two and a half chapters to it. I mean, you're done with uh, Frontenac's first term on page 60 of a 320-page book. And remember, much of that, and that for whole first chapter is about Frontenac's youth. So only about a sixth or fifth of the book deals with that first term, which is 10 years. Um, you actually get a lot of details when you look up Wikipedia about Frontenac's first term that Parkman doesn't mention at all, like how he built forts. And, and some of that, I'm sure if we go back 
and, and kind of comb through the LaSalle book and the old regime book, we'll, we'll get some of those stories. Um, but it's just the problem of the way Parkman kind of divided up this, not chronologically, but kind of looking at different aspects of New France that if, you know, I'm sure if I went back and read those now, I would notice things that maybe I didn't notice before. So uh, politically, though, he's not that interested in Frontenac's first um, term, although he, it is a major role in the LaSalle book, if you go back and look at it. Um, so chapter three is called Frontenac and Perrault. This is not Nicolas Perrault. It is Francois-Marie Perrault. Um, don't confuse the two. Uh, Nicolas Perrault, the explorer in Cour de Bois, uh, does show up later in the book, just briefly. But yeah, don't. Um, this is the governor of Montreal. So, you know, part of the issue here is it's not that administration. In theory, the governor general has domain over the governors of Acadia, the governors of Louisiana, the governors of... Montreal and other places, but in practice, you know, power is is where it, you know Varus is it from Ice and Fire Varus's um, riddle, right? Power is where people uh, imagine it to be, um, and and Frontenac didn't have as much control over the the governor of Montreal as he would like, and this caused problems for the court. Um, so we get a really great section here about the Cour des Bois. I I, I just I'm glad these, these people are playing a more prominent role in this part of the book. Um, you know, they were a force that didn't quite fit into his three estates theory very much or how he wanted to create a social order in New France, a political order. And they caused trouble. They were not fully civilized. We talked a little bit about this in the last episode, too, how there were efforts to kind of repair the morals uh, of that and the whole trouble of centralization ran into difficulty when you get farther out to the frontier when you're dealing with the fur traders and those types of um, folks um, you know here there's even a, a moment where Frontenac gets orders from the king to arrest the bush rangers rangers but he didn't have the soldiers to do it right so um, how does this run into problems with Perrault the governor of Montreal well it's it's like this. So Perot was profiting off of illegal trade, essentially, using the Cour de Bois as his agents, you know, farther out west where, where he is. And when people protested this and said, you're not following the royal edict, Perot tried to have these guys actually, you know, he was forced to try to make them stop. Um, so... Um, in 1673, Frontenac sets up his own trading post, which uh, is then competing with Perot's illegal trade. And this is creating a, a greater kind of actually material conflict between Frontenac and Perot between Quebec and Montreal. Um, so essentially, Frontenac has Perot arrested. And there's a whole kind of side story about this guy named Bizarre. That's the trumped up charges that, that Frontenac uses to get Perot um, arrested and eventually you know Perot has to go back to France and be and be put in the Bastille for a time just for kind of for show even though it doesn't seem the king and Colbert agreed with what Frontenac was doing vis-a-vis -vis Perot it's kind of an interesting story I think it's it's a rather fun chapter to get at that uh, to, to get at just the you know how nitty-gritty power was there and how there wasn't clear lines of power between Montreal, especially in the frontier regions. And when money, 
the, the wealth of the fur trade was involved. So Colbert writes this letter after Perrault is sent back to, back to France for his punishment. Colbert writes this letter basically scolding Frontenac for doing this. He's, he's, he writes, he wrote, though I do not credit all that has been told me concerning various little annoyances which you caused to the ecclesiastics, a little mention there to the ongoing problems between the governor and the church, which had predated Frontenac. All right, going on. I nevertheless think it necessary to inform you of it in order that if true, you may correct yourself in this particular, giving to all the clergy entire liberty to go and come throughout Canada without compelling them to take out passports, and at the same time, leaving them perfect freedom as regards their letters. I have seen and carefully examined all that you have sent touching Monsieur Perrault, and have, and after having also seen all the papers given to him in his defense, I have condemned his actions in imprisoning an officer of your guard. To punish him, I had him placed for a short time in the Bastille, but he may learn to be more circumstant in the discharge of his duty, and that his example may serve as a warning to others. But after having thus vindicated my authority, which has been violated in your person, I will say in order that you may fully understand my views, that you should not, without absolute necessity, cause your commands to be executed without the limits, within the limits of the local government, like that of Montreal, without first informing us governor, and also that 10 months imprisonment which you had made him undergo seemed to me sufficient for his fault. I therefore sent him to the Bastille merely as a public reparation for having violated my authority. After keeping him there a few days, I shall send him back to his government, ordering him first to see you and make an apology. So that's, the, that's Colbert's response. Essentially, he's being political about it, but he's essentially saying you went way too far in undermining the local authority of, of Montreal. And we don't want these kinds of conflicts in our in our empire, in New France. I think it's largely about order, is what they're concerned about. Um, chapter four is called Frontenac in Duchesneau, and so Duchesneau is the intendant. That's why I spent all that time boring you with the administration of New France earlier. Is uh, he's the intendant who arrives, and so he is in this position created by Louis the Fourteenth, and he's kind of serving. Uh, in some ways, as a representative of, of the crown. And the conflict they have is seems stupid to us, but it was important in those times. It was between, uh, you know, titles, authority, uh, etiquette matters. It's, it's kind of the same stuff we talked about before with Laval and his issues with various um, intendants and governors. Um, you know, and this actually leads to Louis XIV himself writing a letter um, you know, basically telling them not to bicker about this this nonsense. Um, and then in this chapter, there's a bunch of other descriptions about uh, issues with the Corte Bois, uh, issues with the church, uh, a lot of ongoing conflicts between the bishops. Um, and so all of this culminates in 1682 with uh, Louis XIV ending the term of both Frontenac and Duchesneau. Both the intendant and the governor are fired. That's in 1682. So that's the end of his first term. Um, and it seems at this picture, you know, a lot, you know, he did a lot of important stuff, but that's kind of sketched out in volume three of France and England and North America, the LaSalle book, like the forming of like Fort Frontenac. I think that was during this, this period. So it's kind of, you got to kind of remember or go back and read that book to get a bigger picture of his first term. This one presents it just as kind of a conflict-ridden period where Frontenac made a lot of mistakes. And you read it and you're kind of thinking, like, what's so great about this guy? 
you know, Tarquin seems to think he was the greatest governor in history of New France, but you don't get that feeling when you read the first 50 pages or so of the book. So chapter five then picks up with the new governor, Le Fabre de la Barre. Um, and he was governor from 1682 to 1684, so only three years. And his mission was basically to regulate things in New France. Um, but he faced a new conflict with the Iroquois. So the Iroquois become a larger, larger part of the story from this point on. And really part of the crisis that leads to the return of Frontenac in 1689 is the Iroquois. So uh, Parkman kind of summarizes the, the, the Iroquois goals here. Um, it was the purpose of the Iroquois to master all this traffic, meaning the trade, conquer the tribes who had possession of it and divert the entire supply of furs to themselves and through themselves to the Dutch and English. The English and Dutch traders urged them on his affirmation by the French and is very likely. The accomplishment of this scheme would have ruined Canada. Moreover, the Illinois, the Hurons, the Ottawas, and the other tribes threatened by the Iroquois were the allies and children of the French, who in honor of an interest were bound to protect them. Hence, when the Seneca invasion of the Illinois became known, there was deep anxiety in the colony, except among those in whom hatred of the monopolist La Salle had overborne every consideration of the public good. La Salle's new establishment of St. Louis was in the path of the invaders, and if he could be crushed, there was wherewithal to console his enemies for all else might ensure. So that's the really bad situation uh, Labar is in, where you basically have an, a, a, the Iroquois taking advantage of the growing power of England and the Dutch in the Americas to play them off the French and maybe cut the French out of the trade. That's the whole lifeblood of the colony, right? So, and then you have this problem of the, of the Iroquois directly threatening clear allies of the French, like the Illinois. So um, that's kind of Labar's problem. Um, chapter six is called Labar and the Iroquois, and this is set all in 1684. And this, uh, basically is um, how Labar kind of managed a, a quick and easy peace with the Iroquois that year. Um, he was recalled in 1685, I guess, was the date it was, he was actually recalled. Um, maybe it was 1684, sometime there, for being too old. That's what the letter Louis XIV wrote, said. But actually it was for, for accepting a peace with the Iroquois that sold out the Illinois and sold out some other French allies. Um, so ultimately, he couldn't remain on as governor general. Um, so the Iroquois sort of got a fairly favorable piece out of that. Um, and then who takes over? Well, the person who takes over is Marquis uh, Denoville. And he would be governor from 1685 to 1689 when uh, Frontenac would come back. He's most known for waging a somewhat successful campaign against the Seneca as part of this broader Iroquois conflict. Um, but now there's another important kind of, now we have to kind of think about England and what's happened in England around this time. Now the governor of New York at the time is a guy named Dongan. Dongan. And I think he was Irish of Irish background. Uh, and he was an agent of James II. So there's a good reason to believe that there could be cooperation between France and England at this time because, you know, two Catholic kings at peace. 
Um, and actually, he's replacing Edmund Andrews, who, if you remember your U.S. history, would later become governor of all of New England when James II tried to reorganize the colonies. And that, that's kind of the, you know, the, the political situation more broadly. And that's all going to break down in 1688 in the Glorious Revolution. Um, but nevertheless, there is a lot of tension between the French and the English in the Americas, despite the fact that James II might have been Catholic. Um, partly it's because Dongen has been, was working on making closer and closer relations with the Iroquois. And this is something that was hinted at in an earlier chapter, the Labar stuff, because you know the Iroquois saw an opportunity to sell their stuff to, to control as much of the trade as possible and then sell it to the English or play the English off the French to get more profit, to get better political situations, whatever it might be. Um, so Dongen tries to work out this relationship with the Iroquois. And at the same time, he's got these conflicts with the border. And, and Dongen actually helped establish the modern borders of, of New York with, uh, with France. So um, that's all. All these kind of conflicts are described. And the situation is described in Chapter 7, Deneville and Dogen, it's called. So I'm running a little long here, so I'll just do one more chapter. Uh, chapter 8, Deneville and the Senecas. And I'll just say briefly, this is a description of the campaign that Deneville engages against the Seneca, of course, one of the Iroquois, um, part of the Iroquois Confederacy. It's a half success, but um, the fact that you have a war with the Iroquois joined up with a, a war with the English made Louis XIV turned back to Frontenac to, to be governor of, of New France. And that is where I'll pick up in the next episode, where I'll look at the second 100 pages or so of Count Frontenac in New France, which will look at uh, mostly that war, the Nine Years' War in North America, and what it meant for the, the politics of, of New France. So anyways... If you have any thoughts or questions about, about Frontenac's first term, Labar, Deneville, Andros, Dogen, all these people, you know, I'll, I'll try to answer them for you. So you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'd also love your comments if you have any. So that's going to be it for now. I'll see you next time with my uh, part two of my thoughts on book five of France and England and North America. See you then.